morning and welcome to what we're going to call uh, OmaCast, uh, podcasts from the middle ground in Oma. I once described Oma recently as picturesque, friendly and damp, and it certainly lives up to that reputation this morning. We have a, a renowned panel. We have um, Andy Gordon, retired teacher, um, windsurfer extraordinaire and uh, a musician. Also, Frank Sweeney, uh, Irish literature guru and uh, the inspiration and the visionary for the Stroll Arts Centre. So we're going to start this morning with, do we in Northern Ireland use culture as a weapon? Frank, in your, in your experience, how would you view... I think we have to be careful and try and clear a little bit of the undergrowth and disentangle a myriad of concepts which lie within that statement. How do we define culture? There's culture in the very broad sense and there's culture in a narrow sense. And when we look at culture in the broadest sense, to me, that type of culture is how is a term we use to define the whole series of competences that define a people in a given geographical area yeah. or political entity. Yeah. And that includes everything from uh, how we organize society, how we build buildings, yeah. how we uh, do politics, <coughs> how we build bridges and roads, how we socialize, what type of customs and traditions we use, uh, what, uh, what type of music and theater and arts do we embrace and that that is all and how do we organize religion yes those are all in, uh, subsumed under that broader concept of culture yeah. yeah yeah if you want to come to the more narrow concept of culture then to me that type of culture is that series of activities which includes but is not limited to dancing music yes literature theater sculpture, uh, crafts, etc., etc. So there is that the, the creative activities, should we say, if we want to use that way. And I think as we go into this discussion, then I think both of those definitions are going to play their part uh, and, and we'll see how that, how that plays out. But, but Frank, what do you describe as the first? Is that not tradition? Or is tradition the same as culture? No, no, it's, 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 it's all embracing. It's a culture because culture is, is changing and embracing and in order for a culture to survive it has to fuse with other influences and move on well, and embrace, th embrace things and change and otherwise it becomes static and, and fossilised. Well but, but just before we, we came on air we were chatting a wee bit there and you were talking about being in New Zealand. Yes. And, and I mean take the Maoris of New Zealand and the Aborigines, Aborigines of Australia and, and how their traditions in your in your book their cultures have changed whereas they were they were put to the side in Australia the British put them squeezed them out in Australia and yet in New Zealand the Maoris flourished yeah the reason being that 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 the the Maoris were able to negotiate a better deal with the British in the act that established New Zealand as a state okay. uh, and in the colonies and even to this day Within New Zealand, there are serious land disputes going on uh, in in the courts, where Maori uh, collectives are now disputing the transfer of lands to the British state at the time of the of the the act. Uh, so, uh, the Maori's got a better deal than the Aborigines. So, the, the start from the start. So that's culture. 
Well, it's 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 the whole way of life. The whole way of life of a given people in a given uh, area is what we call culture, and it includes everything. Sort of food we eat, how we socialise, as I said, all those things. That's the broader concept of culture. And, and is the issue in Northern Ireland then that the that the two cultures that, that, that we're all well aware of, an Irish culture and a British culture, that they are profoundly different in, in, the, in your broader sense, your broader definition of culture? Well, I, I think, I mean... Brian McCavra has written a book called uh, The Arts and Politics in Ireland. It's probably the only book written about this subject. Very, And one of the things that he investigates in that book is the assertion that we are mired in the 17th century here in the north of Ireland uh, from the plantation. And this is, this is the whole issue of using that wider culture as a weapon. Because when, when the British planted Ulster, they brought in these settlers and what they tried to do was to do away with the native ways of life, the language. Language is a big thing in terms of, 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 of informing culture. Do away with the native language, do away with, supplant the religion, supplant their ways of farming and tilling and building houses. <coughs> All those sorts of changes come in and uh, because there was still a large native population and because there was numerous revolts and Irish history tells the whole story the supplanted population then developed what we call the siege mentality that everybody was out to get them and they kept to themselves and they didn't mix and they didn't fuse and they didn't embrace and we are still living that out in the north of Ireland uh, and what you have is that culture has been is being used as a, a wider political weapon and really since the Good Friday Agreement and uh, uh, was signed and the troubles so-called finished, what we've been having has been a cultural war in Northern Ireland. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I, whenever I think of culture and and the small term and and this little part of the world, uh, I just see it as well. Bluntly, the Catholic tradition has a culture and the Protestant tradition hasn't, uh, in my view. And, and I put it down to the parish system, you know, where Catholicism, if you're living in Killyclocher, you're all, and everybody in that area, all the families in that area go to that parish. Uh, I may be wrong, because I, I know very little about it. Uh, and yet, in the same area, you have... You know, if you started going to the Presbyterian church, well, you were Presbyterian. And then if you didn't like that, you left there and you... You, you set up the Free Presbyterian Church and then maybe if you didn't like that you, you left and you set up the really Free Presbyterian you know and it's been fragmented and uh, Protestantism is just bits and pieces of everything and, and the whole and the whole community aren't together there's wee bits here and they won't mix but Is that not the, the, the definition of the Protestant faith is that it splits and, 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 and moves apart because it's more there's more influence put or more attention given. They ask to more questions, Bob. They ask more, well, potentially, <laughs> I, I don't know about that, but it's more individualistic. And the tradition is that if you don't like something that your church aspires, you walk away and set up another church. And as you said, the, there's a whole there's a whole slope from the from, from the Anglicans to the Methodists to the Presbyterians to the Salvation Army to the to the Fishermen's Missions, where people get less and less restrained by central command, if you like. Uh, and, and, and there are strengths and weaknesses to that. The strength is that 
you wouldn't get the same level of um, community. Community, no, that's a, that's a weakness. But the strength is you, you couldn't have as much, say, clerical uh, clerical abuse in a Protestant church because people don't hold their clergy in as high a regard okay. as a Catholic community would have done. But there's many weaknesses as well. I mean, and and, you, and you've identified the fact that there's less. There's less feeling of identity. Yes, yes, very much in, in, so. In the Protestant faith. And, and, that, and that's a case of, you know, what's coming up, you know, in the years to come, there's going to be a border poll. You know, obviously there's going to be a border poll at some stage. And it'll be interesting to see what happens then. I think things have changed. You see, we're back to talking about politics again. Well, <sighs> culture and politics, you know, it's very difficult to separate them because everything happens within a context and the context is life and reality and that is politics the way we live and the way we do everything that is politics politics mean people uh, in terms of, of, of the whole point about Presbyterianism there, I remember some years ago I had the Reverend John Dunlop come to Oma Library to give a fantastic lecture where he talked about the history of Presbyterianism in Ireland from 1780 to 1870 that period of about 80 years where it was transformed, Anglicanism had been the established church under in, in the middle of the 19th century, and Presbyterians suffered the same levels of discrimination as the native population had, had suffered in terms of land tenure particularly and culture. And the first great wave of emigration mm -hmm. from Ireland was not after the famine. It was in the late 1790s, early 1800s, and it was basically a Presbyterian wave of emigration where they were being persecuted. But then that all changed at about 1870 and, and things became a wee bit more settled. But there's still tensions between the different denominations within the Protestant faith. I remember uh, in 2010, I held a, a symposium here on identity in Northern Ireland, and we had a guy who was uh, speaking on behalf of the Orange Order here, and uh, he said, uh, what was very interesting was he said his family had settled in uh, outside Larne, the village outside Larne, in 1642, and had been there since. And he had loads of relatives in Scotland and England. And he said, in terms of his identity, he felt more uh, uh, in tune with his relatives in Scotland than with his relatives in England. But he felt absolutely no affinity for Ireland and had no sense of Irish identity after his family been here for over 400 years, right? But uh, the main thing he's, he talked about was that, uh, he said that one of the biggest crises that hit the family was that one member of the wider family had married one of the other side, uh, yes. right? And this, this went on for a while and I was a bit perplexed, so I questioned, what do you mean one of the other side had married Church of Ireland? Exactly. Wow. <laughs> See, so that, that sometimes, sometimes we yeah. misrepresent uh -huh. things. The that's, facts that, and truth. That, that, that's an interesting distinction because, uh, as an Englishman, although I've lived in Omer for the last forty years, but uh, as an Englishman, I wasn't aware of the distinction between religious denominations when I came here in the late seventies. Uh, for me, there was the Salvation Army, which I was raised in, and then there was Methodists and Anglicans and Catholics and blah 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 blah. And it's only when I got to Tyrone that I realised. <laughs> This happens. I went to an education conference in the late 80s and we had to give a talk about uh, ethnic minorities and how they were coped with in our education authority. And when it came to my turn, at the time we, we, we had little or no ethnic minorities here, I said, well, we don't do that in the Western Education Library Board, but we do cross-community with Catholics and Protestants. 
And I talked about that for a while. And at the coffee break, a lady came to me and said, you have a very confusing accent. <laughs> and I said, are you, are you joking, my love? And she said, no, you have, very jo- you have a very confusing accent because most of the time you have quite a strong Yorkshire accent. But when you say Catholic and Protestant, you say them with an Irish accent. <laughs> and I realised because they weren't terms I knew, oh, yes. I learnt those terms Here. in County Tyrone oh, because goodness. it wasn't words I would have ever heard used in Yorkshire. There was no concept of Catholic and Protestants. And as Frank said, is it the siege mentality that keeps that that concept alive? Well, I think it probably is. There's, there's a fear. It's, you know, it's a, the, you vote for them or vote for us or they'll get in. And the other side are saying exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, going back to identity, Frank, uh, uh, l- last week I heard someone talking about identity and, and how... Um, in the years to come whenever we have a border poll. Fifteen years ago, they said uh, the majority of nationalists in, in Northern Ireland would have an Irish identity and would say they would have had an Irish identity. But the clo- over the last couple of years with Brexit and with all this, uh, they're, they're moving away from that. A section of them are moving away and thinking, now, after a border poll of us in all Ireland, uh, they're looking at it economically. They're thinking... Now, well, I still well, we still have an NHS. Well, there been, you know, uh, what about my pension? So instead of th- they're moving away from worrying about their Irish identity or or wanting their Irish identity to a sort of an economic thinking about the whole thing. Yes. Would, yeah, would yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's very interesting about uh, the culture of Protestants and 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 Iron, you know, because in the 19th century you had the development of the Orange Order and the GAA. And the Orange Order provided a sort of a cement cement to bind the Protestant community together. Uh, and and I suppose in a way it was a, as a way of big house unionism exercising control over the masses. In the same way, the GAA developed and it became a sort of a cement for binding uh, nationalist or Catholic people together in terms of cultural pursuits and cultural identity. Uh, and so that 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 has developed. Uh, the Orange Order was the first institution to come under attack after the Good Friday Agreement, where you could see that Sinn Féin deliberately targeted, and you had the whole business of marches and all the rest of it, and that war went on. And anyway, the power of the Orange Order has declined substantially. Then the Sinners began to push the whole concept of the Irish language, and, and, and a lot of Irish language activists would tell you that that they have appropriated the language and are using it just for political ends and then in response unionism came up with this Ulster Scots thing Uh, and uh, you have the Ulster Scots language and uh, certainly they've taken to Scottish country dancing in a big way and that's fine because a lot of them have their roots in Scotland and they they didn't go for uh, Scottish Gaelic because it's too closely allied to Irish Gaelic and Welsh Gaelic and Cornish Gaelic uh, and Manx Gaelic, you know. So uh, they 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 looked at it and they and they seen what's going on here, and they talked about this British culture, and some people still talk about the British culture. And I'm thinking, what is British culture? Because within Britain, you have uh, an English culture first and foremost, and within English culture, you have the Geordie. You've got the Yorkshire man, you've got Cornwall has a distinct culture, the Londoner has a distinct culture, then you have Scottish culture, and you have Welsh culture, and you have Manx culture, and you have Irish culture. So 
uh, I think part and parcel of the problem was too that you didn't mention Northern Irish culture. Well, because we don't have one. Well, well, well. You see, Northern Ireland identity is starting to be mentioned too in recent years. So it's start, but but I think it has been supplanted by Ulster Scots, uh, more or less in terms of of of, of its. Uh, Influence uh-huh. on the wider cultural well, and political scene. Well, you, you talk about the GAA now. Is it is it a case of I talked about the parishes? Is it a case of almost the GAA organisation have taken over the parishes? <laughs> or the you know I look at I look at the GAA and from a sporting point of view, uh, I think absolutely wonderful. I'm going along the road there out, out by Drum to Kelly, and you look down. And on a Saturday morning, there's there's eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds out playing Gaelic or playing hurling or something. Yeah. And at every age, now there's there's we don't do that. There's nothing on the Protestant side like that at all. You've might you have a couple of clubs around here, football clubs, but on mass, we're not teaching our boys to play soccer or to play rugby or to play any sport. Well, certainly, rugby is better organised than soccer. Yes, yes, you've you've junior, you've many rugby yeah, out of the rugby yeah, club yeah, and all, but yeah. then it's, of course again that's that's an all Ireland sport. But the thing about possibly. the GAA, it you know it has moved on from uh, really, and although it does the score thing in terms of the culture, and there's a wee bit of Irish language being done, most of its emphasis is on the sport. But in terms of the cultural thing, it it's it's more a social thing now, to be honest about it, uh, and a way of life. And I mean, is that not better than the you, religion? Oh, it, it's it's better, and it, well, I, I don't know that it ever was a religious thing, to be honest uh-huh. with you, or uh, it hasn't been in my lifetime, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Although they do organise on a parish basis, Aye, the clubs, yeah. you know, and well, they're, they're married there now, Frank. You know, it's not as it's not as as uh, institutionalised as people would believe, to be honest oh, about it. Oh. Uh, and but you you think of the social economy of the GAA. This is one of the big things they talk about down south, the social economy value of the GAA, where in every parish and in uh, every part of the country, the best piece of ground in any town or village or hamlet is the GAA pitch. And any time you go past, there's under 10 girls being coached or under 8 boys or under 12 or under 50. It's quite an amazing Uh social phenomenon, Uh but it's not so much political as as social, to be quite frank about it. And you mentioned Scar there, and Bob, you'll maybe take us up on this. Irish traditional music. Is it Irish? Well, there's an argument that says... Um, uh, that if if we if we think of culture I- I in the smaller sense that Frank talked about at the start uh, as an expression of fine arts of music dancing literature and things that no one owns a culture no, no, no one owns music so the, 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 the Irish music is is a fusion of some Irish music Scottish music reels and jigs hornpipes which came from England and a myriad of other other influences because that's how music works and and if you if you tie music up and put it in a box it'll die yeah. so, so so in a sense Irish music is is all those influences but the, the, I mean the organisation that runs it what's it called Frank the um, Cultus Cultura Cult- yeah Cultus. that's it um, have been very successful in in marketing that yes. A, yes. A, a, as Irish music and, and now it's identified as Irish music yes. and yes. fair play to them but I mean whether it's if you said well, watch British music, there's no such thing as British music, or there's no such thing as classical music. Well, classical music is essentially almost German, to be honest. But um, because 
cultures are just influenced by everyone. I mean, you can follow, there's a brilliant series that RTE did about 30, 35 years ago called Bringing It All Back Home, yeah. yep. uh, which I've, I've parodied on a number of occasions where they trace the roots of poppy music going from the Irish immigrants, Scottish immigrants, across the uh, water to America, yeah, the, the, the African influences, yeah, yeah. the Mexican influences, and Elvis Presley coming out at the top of it. Fusion. And, and a fusion, and that's exactly what culture is. So, I mean, y you can't ever say this is Irish culture, this is Scottish culture, yeah. in the sense, that, in the smaller sense, Frank, that, yeah, that, you, that, you, that we, you, we you, talked you, about. You take, you take uh, the whole history of culture. Language is probably the most important expression of culture. Uh, and you take, you take uh, most of the languages of Northern Europe. I remember the German philologists did a lot of work of this in, in, in the late 19th, early 20th century. And whenever I went to Queen's many years ago, the professor of Celtic studies was a Swiss German called Heinrich Wagner, Professor Heinrich Wagner, who was a philologist. And he, his big thing was, and he was working on uh, theories that had been developed by the German philologist, that all the Northern European languages traced their roots to an ancient Indian language called Sanskrit. Yeah. And you can trace the whole development of that up right across the whole of India and then across uh, the Middle East and then through Europe and to Northern Europe and then across into Britain uh, and, and finally Ireland. And when you look at the history of Europe and how culture has fused, when you look at it, they started up all with small city-states right across Europe. And it's only in... in, 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 in at 1870 that Italy became a unified state Germany mm. became a unified state but you think of all the fusions that have gone on across Europe because we're an island race we haven't had the same fusion same with Britain there hasn't been the same fusion and as I say for a culture to develop it has to fuse it has to get life and that's 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 what's been going on and we're, we're certainly we're not as uh, even as up to speed <laughs> we're not as up to speed even as people down south in terms of embracing those outside influences? We're a gannet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just yeah. it. We're a gannet. Yeah. And, and I mean, certainly, language is, as you say, is, is an interesting um, uh, subject and all of that. And it's uh, on a much lighter note, there's a lot of research done as to why certain cultural things happen in certain communities. One of being my, my world of brass playing. And brass playing is obviously very prevalent in, in Yorkshire. Yeah. And they think now it's be Yorkshire people are more inclined to be better brass players because of the way they talk. Yeah. Because it's all involved with, with, with articulations and the shape yeah. of your mouth. And there's a lot of research being done on that. Um, we had a, a conversation with Steve Mead, who, who, who Frank yes. would have known from visiting Euphonium him. Player, yeah. Euphonium player. World class yeah. Euphonium player. And Steve spent a summer in uh, summer schools in Spain, and he said the Spanish brass players were very difficult because they all go th 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 th, th. Uh, 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 and the definition of brass playing is t t t t t. Yes. He said, and the Spanish can't do it. All right. Okay. So he said it doesn't flourish in Spain because of the way they talk. Okay. If you take all the cultural, you know, <coughs> experiences that inform what we do, I mean. Go back to the very beginning. A very good place to start, as they say, in the sound <laughs> of music. <coughs> Greece, the Athenian city-state. And you talk about using culture as a weapon. The golden era of the Athenian city-state was the 5th century BC. And particularly during the reign of a man called Pericles, who was a soldier. But Pericles uh, assumed power in Rome 
or in Athens in 461 I think it was he was there from 461 to 429 and in order to keep his position in power because the, the Athenian state was a democracy what he did was that he had a great big uh, program for renewing all the temples and this included the Parthenon on the Acropolis and along with that then uh, where you get a temple you'll always get an auditorium he promoted drama and Greek tragedy and plays and the whole concept of the drama festival started under the reign of Pericles in the Greek Athenian state where he used to run annual drama festivals and of all these plays by all the great Greek writers performed in, in, in Athens and what he did was that in order to enhance his popularity because he was a very wealthy man he gave all the citizens free access to it and that was part of his weapon in terms of assuming power and keeping power and retaining power and you think about the influence of the likes of the Parthenon. It, has, it, is, it is the uh, reference point of all architecture. Just yeah. talking about drama, I mean, bringing it again, bringing it back to this little corner of the world. I mean, drama in Tyrone is, uh, there aren't very many uh, unionists or Protestant drama groups. And yet there are many Catholic drama groups. Again, the, how do you explain that? Is that an expression of, of, of that culture in the smaller sense that Frank talks about is much more important in, in the nationalist community? Is it, is well, it, is I, it more highly valued than, I, than the unionist uh, community? I think what, what happened there was that, and again it was Yeats and Lady Gregory and co who were responsible for establishing the Irish National Theatre, the Abbey. Uh, and they had this great vision of a Celtic revival and of course Yeats and Lady Gregor are both Anglo-Irish uh, and uh, as a result of that there emerged a whole series there are northern playwrights and uh, who had their plays performed in the Abbey Theatre Shields and, and co and, um, uh, but what happened was that the staple repertoire of the of the Abbey Theatre was all these kitchen comedies, yeah, kitchen yeah. plays, and that developed, and it probably came from the south, uh, and groups were set up to perform them. Uh, I remember one time uh, uh, in the early days of the Oma Players back in my youth. Well, that was not even the early days. Back in my youth, Oma Players was formed nineteen thirty-two, I think it was, but there was a parochial uh, yeah. uh, patronage of the Oma yes. Players in the early days. Yes, and I remember a priest uh, getting up one night in the town hall and announcing that uh, uh, at the end of it he was lauding the Oma Players for the great work they do, and he talked about it's great to see local companies doing simple plays for simple people. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and that might be the way it has emerged. You mm -hmm. know, it was accessible, and mm -hmm. people could do it. And you have mm -hmm. like it's, it's a, a, the whole drama festival. Oh, the drama festival! Yes, uh -huh. it yes. is indeed. Yes. Uh -huh. yeah. In fact, uh, I mean, Carrick Moore still has a oh, absolutely yes theatre, uh -huh. isn't it out there? Yeah. Is yeah. Yeah. And festival. And Andy, what 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 would you put the reason that that culture in the smaller sense, in the fine art sense? Do you think it's less valued in a unionist community Absolutely. than a nationalist community? And well, the, you, and you the, can't the, get them out to do anything. And the interesting question there is why 
Why is it? And, and certainly. Us uh, and them again. It's theirs. Fusion. It's theirs. If they're doing it, we're not doing it. Oh, okay. Okay. I hadn't thought of, I hadn't thought of that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I mean, <coughs> on a completely um, right-angled um, uh, subject here, Frank talked about language uh, and, and and the Irish language. Frank, th- there was—is it? I read some time way back that parts of the sperm were a gale talked until comparatively recently. Yeah, there was a, the there was a gale talked area in around the, the uh, Greencastle Ruski area up until the late nineteen forties. Right, uh, and uh, Michael J. Murphy has written that book about that Tyrone Forquest, and there are still recordings of the native Gaelic speakers of that area from the 1940s in the Irish Folk Archive in Dublin. Mm-hmm. That's what I heard that on RTE. It must have been a radio program I heard driving from on RTE, and it was about Tyrone, the Tyrone Gale uh-huh. yeah. yes. which I had never heard of. I have that to say, until But what what you would find too is that at the higher fairs back up and uh, up until the 30s 40s a lot of Donegal native speaking Irish people from Donegal came to the higher fairs and hired out to uh, to uh, farmers in this area and would have stayed uh, and there was this, there's all that influence it's all very Donegal areas a lot of Donegal areas spoken there right okay generally in terms of culture there's a reticence for people to declare their you know uh, what their cultural identity is you know, yes. th- especially in country areas, you have this whole thing about yeah, yes. you know whatever yeah. you say, say nothing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that that pervades, and people are afraid to speak out. Yes. Uh, and I think until that changes, we're going to have difficulty changing things. I think Seamus Heaney summed it up with a great, uh, great quip when he was ta- when somebody t- mentioned this to him, and uh, in terms of this mentality, and he said, you know, compared to us, he said, uh, smoke signals are loud mouthed. So, on behalf of Frank Sweeney and Andy Gordon and me, Bob Quick, that's the end of the first Omacast. Oh,